Welcome to yet another episode of the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. Our goal is to inspire the citizens of the world to become fierce defenders and passionate advocates for democracy, for freedom, and for justice around the world. My name is Ivan Mawaride, and I'm a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I led millions of people to protest against the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe. Today, I want to lead us in a story that talks about why it's important to trust that when you embark on a mission to bring change, you will find things that will help you that you did not plan for, but are not guaranteed when you start. Now, let me put it another way. You will see that sometimes the things that will give you confidence and that will give you faith to continue and hope and courage and positive expectation are things you never thought you would see, but you'll only ever see them when you start the journey. You've listened to me talk to different activists and advocates right here on this podcast. But today I want to go into my own story and pluck some learnings from there. And I hope that these are things that will help you to make decisions in your own life in terms of what you will devote yourself to defending and what you will commit yourself to walking as a journey of purpose and as a journey of legacy. It's a hard story for me to tell. There's many things in the story that evoke emotions that I'm still dealing with, scars that I still have from that journey. But I hope that we can journey together and that you can listen closely and hear some of the things that I saw maybe even visualize some of the things that I saw on this journey. Either way, by the time we're done, my hope is that you will be more convinced that no matter how dangerous a journey or a purpose may be, a decision to embark on it is still going to have to be made and the journey then has to be undertaken. So if you're ready, Let's go. In January of 2017, I was sitting on an airplane that was beginning its descent into Harare. I was flying in from Johannesburg, where I had landed coming from the United States via Heathrow. And as I'm sitting on this plane, I'm scared. I'm sweating because I'm not sure what's going to happen when the plane lands. Now, the reason for my anxiety is that I had left the country six months earlier with the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe in hot pursuit. In April of 2016, I had recorded a short four-minute video. This flag, this beautiful flag. Talking to the citizens of Zimbabwe about why it was important for them to 
find the courage to stand up in justice to the corruption and to the poverty that our nation was going through. In the video, I, I spoke about the need as a generation to play our part. I spoke about why we should never stand by and think that someone else will fix the mess. And watching this flag fly and wishing for a future that you are not at all wanting to get involved in this flag every day that it And this video went viral. I didn't expect it would, but it did. And it led me on a journey where I decided that I would follow that journey, that I was in a moment that I could not step away from. That video became more videos that we uploaded onto social media and that gave birth to different protest actions that we began to instruct our citizens to participate. It was amazing to see the people of Zimbabwe respond with courage and respond with hope and respond with confidence and find it within themselves to break 37 years of fear of the regime that had been in power since 1980. And the reason I had left Zimbabwe on the run is because we had inspired a protest that involved nearly the whole country. It's illegal to protest on the street in Zimbabwe unless you have permission from the police. And of course, that doesn't make any sense. If you need permission to protest from those you're protesting against, then it's not a real protest and you probably will never get the permission anyway. And so we knew that if we asked people to go on the street and protest against the corruption, the injustice and the poverty, that we wouldn't get it. So what we did instead was to ask people to stay at home, boycott. Instead of going on the street, we stay at home. I remember making a video where I said to people, stay at home, don't take your kids to school, don't open your business, don't go to work. Fellow citizens, Wednesday the 6th of July 2016, we are shutting Zimbabwe down. As a way of saying to this regime, enough is enough. It's a protest that everybody could participate in. They surely can't arrest everybody for it. And when the day came after we called this protest in 48 hours, it worked. It worked beautifully. Our people had found their voice. We are right downtown. This is the Gulf Complex. And uh, just look at how empty this town is. Just to show you, Kutizo. When we say the citizens have said enough is enough... The entire country came to a standstill. The major cities were completely shut down. They were empty. There were no people in the streets. There were no children in schools. There were no traders on the street. It shocked me that people had participated. But it was also very, very exciting and the beginning of, of what I look back on as one of the most epic encounters of my life. Oh, of course, the regime would not sit back at something like that. And so they came after me and I was immediately arrested that first time and thrown into jail. And so many things happened during that time. And eventually I was able to escape the country. But here I am sitting on the plane coming back. It's been six months I'd been away. I desperately wanted to return home with my family. 
I wanted to continue the work that we had started with the citizens' movement. This was a hopeful thing. Myself and many people looked to the citizens' movement as something that would really bring an impact. And when I look back, it did. It had its failures, but we did something that ordinary people had never done before. And as the plane descended, it almost felt like I was falling into an abyss myself. Eventually, the plane touched down. And as we were getting off the plane, I could see different people were looking at me as they walked off the plane because they recognized who I was. By then, you know, the story of what we had done in Zimbabwe the year before had been reported on multiple channels and media platforms. And some of those people came up to me and shook my hand and, and said, hey, thank you for what you did. And you know, that's one of the things that I've always admired about my people back home in Zimbabwe is that they recognize when someone has made a sacrifice. And it was a very encouraging moment. But I think I embraced that encouragement at that moment so much more because I was not sure whether I was going to make it home. I was not sure whether I was going to make it out of the airport because when I left, I left as somebody who was being pursued by the government. And so coming back, I was not sure whether there was still a warrant out for my arrest or whether that had been canceled. I walked off the plane and into the customs and immigration area. I still remember my palms sweating, my mouth dried up, and you know my stomach just clenched up because I was anxious, deeply anxious. And as I stood in the line waiting for my passport to be stamped, I could see about three men coming out of the corner of my eye to my left side. Maybe another three or four coming from my right as well. And at that very moment, I knew that this was not going to be a normal arrival. They got to where I was and they asked to see my passport. And one of them asked me, are you Ivan Mawaride? I said, yes. And he said, okay, you are under arrest and you're going to come with us. I was taken into a side room. They strip searched me, rifled through my bags and... I was questioned for more than an hour, maybe an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And eventually I was handed over to the police who then took me to jail. I remember sitting in that cell, it was dark, and thinking to myself, should I have come back? And it's a question that I would ask myself over and over and over again until some of the encounters that I had began to prove to me that I had made the right decision. Now, there's some people think that I shouldn't have gone. But when I look at the sum total of events, I feel like there's a thankfulness or a recognition that going back for me was the right thing to do. And don't get me wrong, the price was heavy. The things that lay ahead were difficult to deal with. But I think also the encounters I had are priceless, they're invaluable. And some of the things that we were able to accomplish are things that I could never swap for anything. 
I sat in that cell and the next day went for my bail hearing, which was denied. So I was then sent to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. I sat in the truck that took me to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. I was the only one in that truck. It was the end of the day. It was almost dark. And Zimbabwe is a place where people who stand up to the government or people that are involved in the politics of the nation, especially those in opposition or in civic society, it's a place where people are treated very badly. It's very hostile. In fact, one year before I recorded my video in April 2016, one year before that, in March of 2015, a young journalist had stood in the city square with a sign that said, failed Robert Mugabe must go. He was a fearless young man. His name is Itai Zamara. And Itai had committed himself to protesting Robert Mugabe's dictatorship, even if it meant that he would do it alone. And he did it alone. A few friends joined him, but most of the time Itai was on his own. The end result was that Itai one day was snatched from his neighborhood. And up to today, he has never been seen or heard from again since March 2015. He left his wife and two children. There's no body, there's no trace, no idea, nothing. He just vanished. And these are the thoughts that are going through my mind as I'm sitting in this truck that is supposedly going to this maximum security prison. I couldn't see where we were going. There was no guarantee that we were going to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. We could have been going anywhere. And as I'm sitting in the back of this truck that had two doors into it that were locked, and I'm sitting on one of the benches in the back and I'm handcuffed and I'm in leg irons, and my mind is racing through thoughts of meeting the end through thoughts of torture that you've only heard about. And I'm thinking to myself, if this is how it ends, I don't know if it was worth it. The guard who was sitting with me in the back of that truck, he was behind one of the two doors. And he could see me through the cage and he could see that I was scared. You know, besides the truck that was shaking the leg irons, there was my own shaking out of fear. And he looked and peered through the cage and our eyes met and I said to him, listen, I don't know where we are going, but if this is the end, if I'm being taken somewhere else and something will happen there, just tell me so that I can at least prepare myself. He was very polite and said to me, look, as far as I know, we're going to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. I'd never been to Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison, so I, I didn't know what to expect. But eventually we arrived there and I was taken out of the truck and I shuffled along in these leg irons and handcuffs into a room where I would be checked in. In that room, I was undressed completely from my civilian clothes. And I was handed the prison garb that they have in Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. Sometimes it's white and it's a, a khaki material. And this one, the color of it was it's kind of brownish, the brown that you get on the brown envelopes. 
And the pair of pants looked clean. They were ripped at the knees. And the top, the top is, is what shook me. It was, it was dirty. It was so, so dirty. It stunk. And it had this brown, like grime that was in the hem around the neck and around the sleeves. Later, I would learn that part of those were actually lice eggs that were in there. And some of the prisoners would show me how to remove them. So I put on these clothes and they led me through to the cell where I would be. Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison is built in a hexagonal shape. And there are about three floors, maybe four floors. And as we're walking, going to the cell that I would spend the next month in, the prison guard walking behind me begins to explain to me the kind of cell I'm going to. And he says to me, you are going to the D section of the prison. It turns out that the A section is where prisoners who are serving sentences from two years and below are kept. And then B section, those that are serving four and below, and then the C section, it's six years and below. And then the D section is reserved for those that are serving longer sentences. And usually that's where those who are serving life sentences are for your serious crimes. And here I am being sent to the D section. Now I had been charged with treason, but I hadn't been tried yet. And the moment I find out from this guard that this is the section of the prison I'm going to, Again, the anxiety kicks in. I don't know what to expect. I don't know why I'm being put in the D section of the prison when I'm not a dangerous criminal. At least I didn't think of myself as being a dangerous criminal. But that is where I was taken. And so as we're walking, going towards this cell, I'm holding in my hand a bucket. And as you go in prison, Everything that you own must fit in a bucket. Everything that you will use in that prison must fit in that bucket. And so I'm holding this bucket that has a few belongings in it. It has some toiletries, it has a few dried food items, dried biscuits that I was allowed to bring in, which would be a currency as well, you know, for you to get different things because that's how people are able to acquire toiletries for those who, you know, either don't have toiletries or if you need to buy protection, you know, you use what you have, you trade with what you have, food items that people that would have visited you, you know, bring you. So I have a few of these things that I've been thoroughly vetted in my bucket and also my Bible is in my bucket as well. My mind is trying to think about this D-section that I'm going to be in. I really didn't know what to expect. I was, I was even more scared as, than I was when I was in that truck. More scared than I was when the plane was landing as I was coming in. And I began to think to myself, how am I going to survive this? Like, I don't know if a fight breaks out, if I get hit, if I get raped. If I get attacked, I have no reference point as to what to say or do. And so we get closer to the cell and 
the prison guard behind me comes to the door and he knocks on that door, big iron gate. And another guard who's inside comes to open. He lets me in to this section of the prison. And before you get to where the cells are, each section in this hexagonal shape has its own courtyard. So I'm led through into the courtyard where the D-section prisoners spend the day. And there's hundreds of men that are in this section. I later found out that that section is designed for, I think, about three, four hundred men. And yet in that section, there must have been between six to eight hundred men that were there. So it was packed beyond capacity. And this is a, a normal thing in Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison to just have an overcrowding. But I'm walking through the hallway and I still have the leg irons on and I still have my handcuffs on as I'm being led in. And all these men stop to look and to see this person coming in. The prison guard then comes and he bends below and he unlocks my leg irons and he unlocks my handcuffs and I'm still holding my bucket. And when he finishes, there are no instructions, nothing. He turned around and left. So I'm standing in the middle of this courtyard with my bucket and all these people are looking at me. Suddenly these four men begin to approach me. And at that point is when I think this is it now. And I can see that they are intentionally approaching me. Everyone else begins to go about their business, but these four guys come and they stand right in front of me. I'm thinking to myself, whatever happens here, I will defend myself as best as I can. And whatever they decide to do to me, it will not happen without a fight. The first man comes up to me. His name was Charles, I remember him. And as he's standing there with the other men flanking him, he puts out his hand to me for a handshake. And he says to me, you must be Pastor Ivan Mawadide. I'm a little bit surprised that they know me in prison. And so I, I stretch my hand out and I shake his hand too. And I say to him, yes, that's me. And he says, we heard about what you have been doing. We heard about how you mobilize people to stand up, to speak truth to power. We heard about how you've been demanding a better country. And we just wanted you to know that we have families that are out there. Charles turns to his other friends and he starts to tell me the crimes that these other three men standing with him committed and the time that they're serving. One guy had been arrested for cattle rustling and he was serving nine years. Another had been arrested for attempted murder. He was, I think at the time, was serving some 15, 20 years. Charles himself was serving a life sentence because he murdered somebody in a fight in a bar. It's a complete accident. And Charles said to me, we cannot do anything for our families, but you can, and you have been doing so. So as a way to say thank you, we decided that we're going to look after you for as long as you're going to be in this cell. 
I cannot tell you how confused I was at that point. I was not even expecting a moment like this on this journey. And Charles, who had become a very strong Christian whilst in prison, said to me, when we heard that you had come back, we prayed that you would be brought to this exact cell in this exact prison. If I was confused the first time when he said, we're here to protect you, or at least we want to pay you back, I was even more confused now. Because I think in my mind, I thought, if you could have prayed for anything, why would you not pray for me to go home instead of praying for me to be brought to prison? And Charles kind of answered that even before I asked. And he says, we knew they would not let you go. We knew it. What we didn't want was them to send you to a prison where nobody would be willing to look after you, to help you during your time in prison. And he said, you represent for us a hope for our families. So we want to make sure that however long you're going to be in this cell, by the time you're done, you are not weak, you are not destroyed, but that you're stronger. One of the things that you want to try and do when you get into Shikrubi Maximum Security Prison is not to cry on your first day. And I'm standing there in front of these men trying my best not to cry, but I just, I couldn't help it. And I just, I broke down. You know, during my time in Chikuribi Maximum Security Prison, there were things that these men could not protect me from. And it was not for lack of not trying, but they were prisoners like me. And sometimes the best they could do was just to warn me and say, hey, be careful of this or be careful of that or just to show me how things operated. And there were times where I was mistreated, where I would be taken and put into a cell on my own, solitary confinement type of a cell for days, for no reason. They couldn't stop that. But the encounter I had with them on that first day changed my entire outlook of the journey that I was on. If anything, these men inspired me to keep going. I saw that there are resources, there is help, there are miracles, if you want to call them that, that wait for you on the journey of things that people may call impossible. When you stand up to what seems to be bigger than you are, when you fight a fight for freedom or justice, that seems to be impossible to win. Sometimes embarking on it is the best thing to do without the guarantee because you're going to find along the way help that will amaze you. During my one-month stay in Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison at that time, these men made sure that I had company they made sure that I heard the stories of men that had left their families. They got men to come and tell me the crimes that they had committed and why they had committed those crimes and how much they wished they hadn't done so, but how much they still wanted their families, their children, their sons and their daughters to succeed. <laughs> it broke me. It broke me listening to men that 
were in such a hopeless situation. And yet they had so much hope for their children. And it, it moved me. It made me even more determined. You know, one day I was sitting my back against the wall, very high walls of the prison. And at the top of the walls, there's this kind of barbed wire or razor wire. One of the guys saw me sitting there and he came to me and he said to me, Hey, Pastor E, you can't sit here dejected. You have to look at these walls and ignore that they exist if you are going to make it on this journey that you are. I remember sitting up to listen to this guy because I thought to myself, this is, this is a prisoner, someone who has committed a crime that's really philosophically beginning to tell me something that sounds amazing. And he carried on and he said, you have to ignore these walls. Ignore these walls. Pretend you are outside. Pretend you are with your friends and family. Pretend you're at work. Make the kinds of appointments you would normally make. With all these men that you see in here, make appointments to see them and to talk with them. Have meetings to, to hear their stories, to talk about life. Just do as you would normally do when you are free. And I said to him, but we, we are not free. And he says, no, 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 you don't get the point. What I'm saying to you is practice being free when you are in bondage so that when you are free, you are freer than those who are free. I'll never forget that for as long as I live. When I left Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison, I still had my regrets about the work I had begun and about coming back to Zimbabwe. But more than anything else, I was convinced that great missions to serve other people, great missions to serve a cause. And sometimes it can be a mission to serve your own children. Maybe you're fighting for your own children. Maybe you're fighting for your own life. Sometimes the things that we want to guarantee that we will have before we start the journey are things we will find only when we make the journey. And as I come to the end of my narration of this part of the story, I hope that you will not step back from the journeys that scare you, the journeys that seem too big, from the fights that look like you are definitely going to lose. Sometimes you have to step up and go for it and then watch the things that you did not expect happen. There's a song by a lady that I heard many years ago. It's a song called, I Hope You Dance. Her name is Leanne Womack. And in that song, some of the lines go, I hope you never lose your sense of wonder. And then she goes on to say that I hope you dance when you come to a place where you feel like you want to give up. When you come to a place where you feel like you have had enough. She says, I hope you still get up and dance. In other words, I hope you continue. I hope you face it. I hope you still sign up for the journey. And so as I end this today, I want to say to you, I hope that as you look at your life ahead, as you look at your nation, whatever nation you're from, you look at the conditions that your society is in, figure out what you can do and then dance and then do it and go for it one step 
at a time. Because sometimes the things we did not expect to happen will happen. Thanks for listening today and hope that something in there meant something to you. Share this with a friend and we will see you again on the front lines of freedom. This is Pastor Ivan. Bye-bye.